Okay, good evening. I think we've all learned from experience that the only way that this microphone really works is if I just kind of hold it here. So we're going to make, we're going to make it happen. Thank you all for coming out. I think as some of you have pointed out, Rabbi Weinstock and I already have a running joke, which unfortunately continues to be true. You can pretty much predict when it is going to snow based on when there will be a history at home. As far as I knew, there was no forecast for snow whatsoever today. But I figured this got to be because I'm going to be, we're going to have this. And sure enough, uh, this afternoon, Rabbi Weinstock and I got together and said thumbs up. Last year, the big blizzard, of course, occurred on, on one of the three history at homes as well. So go figure. In the meantime, it's always good to see everybody. And thank you so much for coming out. It's, uh, this, this year, like all the other ones in the series, are sponsored by the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals. I'm its national scholar as well as KJ. I'm its rabbinic scholar. And we want to also thank the Rudin Family Foundation for sponsoring these particular lectures as well. We've been doing a series on great biblical scandals. If you go to KJ, so you know, like many synagogues, they have a little handout announcing you know, upcoming events. And I was very grateful that they got this one punctuated properly because it was... Great biblical scandals, period, with Chaim Angel. I was very happy. I was very happy that they included the period for all kinds of reasons. It's, uh, but, but, but all the same. So uh, they don't always get it right, but in this particular case, it came in handy. This topic is kind of the reverse angle from the first two. The first two shiurim that we've done in this series is the third of three is dealing with people who generally are described as good, or at least we have presume that they are good, and then they do something absolutely awful. And then the question is, how do you handle that, and how tradition has handled it, and just going through the text. This is the reverse. Here you have one of the worst people ever, biblically speaking, maybe humanly speaking, but certainly biblically speaking. King Ahav is a notorious character. I told my daughters this afternoon that we were going to be doing Ahav tonight. So they got very excited right away, because they all know that Ahav is linked to Eliyahu, who's their all-time favorite character, which is why we named our son that. But in the meantime... I said, yeah, Eliyahu is awesome. He's going to flit in and out into night shiur also. But this is the downside of the equation, which is the wicked king of the north, King Ahab. Just to give a little background to make sure we're all in the right spot. This is ballpark 9th century BCE. By now, the kingdom of Israel has been divided. After King Solomon's time, the northern tribes, 10 of the 12, actually split off from the nation and became their own kingdom. And they called it the kingdom of Israel. They viewed themselves as the real people of Israel. And the southern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Judah. They were reigned by the Davidic kings, and their dynasty was lasted throughout the entire biblical period. The Davidic dynasty ruled over a tribe. It became a tribal reign. That's why they called it the kingdom of Judah, whereas Israel was 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 the predominant force. The kings of the north, there were 19 of them from seven different dynasties, and the, the Tanakh has no problem saying they were all awful. They were. There were no good ones in there. There were basically two tiers of religious behavior that you will find of the 19 northern kings. The founder of the northern kingdom was a man named Yeravam ben Nevat, Jeroboam. He wasted no time at the inception of his reign setting up two golden calves. And he even uses the biblical quotation from the Torah. These are the gods, O Israel, who took you out of the land of Egypt. So as a reader, you're just shaking your head saying, how, you know, first of all, of all things, you know, you didn't learn anything from the first time around. That basically becomes the standard of the northern kingdoms, the northern kings. They all, well, he built them, and then everybody else kept them. Nobody figured that it would be a nice idea to eliminate them. 
So that became the religious shrines of the north. Now the truth is, as bad as that is, because it's bad, I don't need to convince anybody of that, I hope, uh, they were actually built for the sake of heaven. They were not a different deity. They were built in order to serve our God, and boy, oh boy, is that the wrong way to go about doing that. that but that was the goal of Jeroboam and all the kings who retained those golden calves. They had no intentions of worshiping another deity. They simply were serving God in an absolutely illegal and repulsive way. And those were the good northern kings, right? The bad northern kings, like King Ahav, made that seem like child's play, because they actually worshipped other gods. That's way worse. And again, I don't mean to downplay just how bad it is to build any graven images for the sake of heaven. That's also awful. But at least you're serving the right God, just in a very wrong way. King Ahav introduced the Baal cult. Baal was the Canaanite and Phoenician god of rain. He was in charge of the weather. If you are a farmer, you really care about which god is in charge of rain. You really care. There's nobody more important in your overall scheme of things. You want to please that god, whatever it takes. Now, if you were a farmer in ancient Israel, you probably were not, although it was possible that there were exceptions here, a theologian. Your view was, whatever it takes to get the rain is just fine. Okay, so the prophets of God were saying, good evening, welcome, there there are source sheets right on that table-like thing right near you. There you go. Voila. Feel free, to, feel free to come on in. If you're a farmer, you're thinking, okay, I need rain. So the prophets of God, of course, quoted the Torah. The Torah says very clearly, if you serve God properly, you get good rainfall. If you serve God improperly, or you don't serve God at all, or abandon God, then you'll have rain problems. Okay, farmers registered that point. Therefore, serve the God of Israel, because God of Israel is telling us what we need to do. But then the prophets of Baal come in and they say, well, you need to serve Baal if you want rain. So the farmer's view of things is, look, to whom it may concern, please send rain. The way that you do this, and boy, oh boy, the Apple Bank calendars that we all get in the mail somehow, they would not be adequate. The ancient Israelite farmers, the the Apple Banks of, of then, actually had to put on all holidays, both Jewish ones and Baal ones, and they kept all of them faithfully. Because they figured, look, we got to please everybody here, and if we get good rain, it worked. Now, the good news is, if you're a Baal worshiper, you can worship other deities too. Baal really doesn't mind. Polytheistic systems don't care how many other deities you introduce, as long as you're loyal to the ones that are hoping to get your sacrifices. From a monotheistic point of view, of course, this is appalling. I don't need to convince anybody of that. If you're hedging your bets by serving God and serving Baal, it's nice that you serve God too, but you're still an idolater. And this was, of course, Eliyahu's problem. Eliyahu came in and battled tooth and nail against Ahab and his wicked wife Izebel, or Jezebel in English. Wasn't there some fancy restaurant that I never ate at that had that name once? It's not there anymore, or it just doesn't have that? It wasn't superficial because of the name. But the place still exists? Okay, so there you go. So I never had a chance to eat in a rest, kosher restaurant called Jezebel. My, my loss. <laughs> but in the meantime, this, this wicked couple managed to introduce Baal, and Jezebel in particular, a Phoenician princess, she was interested in making sure that the entire northern kingdom adopted Baal worship as their official religion. If you were a good, God-fearing monotheist, this was a problem, and you might protest. If you protest, you might die. That's the climate that we're dealing with. So if you ask, just based on this, if you hear what Ahab's resume is, it is an absolute disaster. 
And lest you think that I am poisoning your minds and biasing the equation in a terrible and unfair and imbalanced way, well, let's just begin reading the story in source number one. Here's the prophetic narrator's introduction of the Ahab narrative. Ahab, son of Omri, did what was displeasing to the Lord more than all who preceded him. Okay, wasting no time just getting him and getting him good. Not content to follow the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nevat, who only did golden calves, right? He took as his wife Jezebel, daughter of King Edbal of the Phoenicians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Meaning he worshipped real another deity. He's way worse than Jeroboam, who served God in an improper, very terribly improper way. He erected an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made a sacred post. Ahab did more to vex the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who preceded him. All right, need we read more? This guy is a monster. He is a notorious idolater who forsakes God, worships Baal, promotes the Baal cult throughout the kingdom. Later on, we find out he's also going to be guilty of murder. Quick plot summary of that situation. There was a poor fellow named Navot. He wasn't poor in the sense of, you know, he was a field owner like anybody else. Poor in the sense of, poor guy. His misfortune is that he, his home happened to be next door to King Ahab's, you know, not his main residence, but his you know, summer home or winter home, where he would go to vacation. He had another plot of land, and he saw Navot's field, and he said, whoa, nice field. Could I purchase it from you? Navot says, God forbid, you don't sell your ancestral plot in ancient Israel unless you are absolutely bankrupt. Otherwise, this was a God's gift to you, you and your family. You hang on to that land. So he said no, which was a perfectly plausible and appropriate thing to do. But Ahab wasn't uh, happy with the response. So he comes home, cries in bed, and you know Jezebel comes in. Oh, honey, what's wrong? Nabot won't give me his field. Let mommy take care of you. And so she goes out. She stages a false trial where two people, it's ironic, testify that Navot blasphemed God. Now, given Ahav and Jezebel's religious track record, this is a very interesting crime to accuse him of doing. But all the same, it worked. They had him executed, and then Ahav took over the vineyard. And so now he's guilty of idolatry and murder. The end. So this guy's a monster. The question for tonight is, uh, how do we view that? Do we just say, okay, he's as bad as I just told you, or as bad as our prophetic narrator just told you, which is much more important, the end? Or is there room to look for complexity within this narrative, where he might have some mitigating factors, and more importantly, he might even have some good things about him? And that's kind of the strange thing that we're going to have to sort through. There's, at the beginning, just a totally bias everybody against him in the most extreme way. Not only is he guilty of idolatry, not only do we have the Navot story, but we find that Queen Jezebel is massacring prophets of God because they're presumably protesting against the whole Baal cult. He says very nasty things even to Eliyahu the prophet, which I don't know, I always feel as much as I love Eliyahu very, very much, happy my kids do, happy to name one of my own children after Eliyahu. All the same, I imagine that if I actually saw him, I would just faint. He's so awe-inspiring and intimidating and terrifying in every way. He's not a normal prophet, even as prophets go. Right? He just it seems so just in a different place. Well, King Ahab has no problem just looking him in the eye and saying, You troubler of Israel, you're causing all of our problems. 
He's just not even intimidated by the most intimidating man in the entire Tanakh. It's incredible. He's a wicked man through and through. The questions that we're going to be looking at tonight are, uh, how much do we care about Jezebel's behavior in the overall scheme of things? And then the other thing is, did Ahab do something right? Did he actually do something that is positive, or even a bunch of things that are positive? First, I want to just continue to bias everything against you, because there's a summary statement at the, toward the end of his reign in Source 2. Indeed, there never was anyone like Ahab who committed himself to doing what was displeasing to the Lord at the instigation of his wife Jezebel. He acted most abominably, straying after the fetishes just like the Amorites, who are another name for the Canaanites, whom the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. This guy was bad. The narrator got him at the beginning of the narrative. He got him at the end of the narrative. He is really surrounded by bad things. And yet, the sages of the Talmud swing into action. Every now and then you hear people talking about, I may have mentioned this in the Davichi, or but again, reverse angle. Now the, the stereotype is that the Talmud always defends the good guys and trashes the bad guys. And the truth is, sometimes the Talmud does defend the good guys and does trash the bad guys. There's no question about that. But sometimes it surprisingly goes the other way. It goes after people who are good for things that you don't necessarily see in the text. And it goes after people who are bad and suddenly gives them remarkable merit. So I'm going to read Source 3, and then we have to start sorting through some of the texts together. Source 3, Rav Nachman said, Ahab was equally balanced, meaning he was as good as he was bad. Since it is written, the Lord asked, who will entice Ahab that he will march and fall at Ramot Gilad? Then one said thus, and another said thus. He quotes a verse from chapter 22, the last chapter of Ahab's life, that the angelic host was debating whether they should entice him or not. Whether or not that's what that verse means is far beyond tonight. But what matters is that here you have a stage in the Talmud saying that Ahab was 50-50. He was 50% good and 50% bad. Rabbi Yosef objected. He of whom it is written, indeed, there never was anyone like Ahab who committed himself to doing what was displeasing to the Lord at the instigation of his wife Jezebel. He's like, are you kidding me? He's 50-50? What percentage is he? He's zero, a hundred. This guy is just plain bad. What are you talking about? And by the way, in light of the sources that we've looked at so far, Rabbi Yosef is so obviously correct. There's nothing good going on over here. This man is... A monster. He is the worst idolater ever. He's a murderer. And these are summary statements which are completely corroborated by the whole narrative. It sounds like this guy is just pure bad. So Rav Yosef doesn't really need to defend himself at all. The question is, what's up with Rav Nachman? Why in the world does Rav Nachman come along and say that Ahab was 50-50? He was balanced. He was just as much good as he was bad. All right, so that's that's tonight's question. Is there something to look for, or is he fishing around in what we would call darshani, making up a drasha on that one verse in chapter chapter 22? All right, so here goes. Question number one is, how much do we blame Ahab for all the evils that happen? Welcome, good evening, come on in. There are source sheets right on that little table-like thing, and then come on in. And feel free to grab a cup of tea and water on the way. Question number one is, how much do we blame Jezebel for everything? Always a good question, right? So, source number four kicks off one of the more important... It's interesting how the narrator chooses to relate this to us. What happened is, just to give more background of the... Because we're playing around with seven with seven chapters. I like being able to play around with seven chapters in under an hour. 
it's, a, it's a good for efficiency, and Achav really plays very nicely as a as a shiur. Achav, there were prophets before, and now Jezebel is busy massacring them so she can promote the Baal cult. In the previous chapter, Elijah the prophet just storms into the palace and says, because of your idolatry, Achav, there's going to be a drought. He just proclaims a drought and then storms on out of there. And then, well, there's a drought. Droughts are bad. And long droughts are really bad. This drought lasts over two years, crippling the nation. People are starving. The animals forget about it. Plant life, it's just a bad situation all around. And if we were doing the Elijah side of this story, there's all kinds of good stuff to talk about there. But that's a different shiur. This is, I'm just trying to filter out the achav piece. So we're up to that post two years plus of drought in this scene. Achav had summoned Ovadiah, the steward of the palace. Ovadiah revered the Lord greatly. When Jezebel was killing off the prophets of the Lord, Ovadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them, fifty to a cave, and provided them with food and drink. All right. So we know that the reign of Ahab and Jezebel destroyed the prophets of Israel, or at least the, the real prophets, not the prophets of Baal. They were massacring the good guys. But whose fault was that? Based on what we just looked at. Hmm? Hmm? Because he brought the drought in the first place. That's what Ahab would answer. Ahab would say it's Elijah's fault for the whole thing. But the massacre of the prophets wasn't necessarily the drought-related thing. In other words, Ahab would blame Elijah for the drought, and Elijah would say, um, no, it's you. And in fact, they have exactly that exchange later in this very chapter when they encounter one another. But the question is, who is to blame for the massacre of the prophets here? Okay, so you could just say, the end. Jezebel was busy massacring And what exactly was the king doing during this? Was he supporting this? Was he silent about it? Was he just a wimp? He asked Ovadiah to, to uh, hide that. It doesn't say that. It sounds like Ovadiah on his own. You know, Ovadiah is a hero in this little afterthought comment. But there's this man named Ovadiah, not to be confused with the prophet by that name. A man named Ovadiah who works in the palace, the head steward, an important official, who was a God-fearing man. And he hid a hundred prophets and fed them during the drought and during all of these massacres. Correct. He summoned him, but not to hide prophets. He summoned him. To, he's summoning him right now to help look for water. You don't see that in the source that you are looking at. You'll see that in the following verses. In other the drought, the narrative is about the drought was so bad that the king and his chief steward are worried about the royal horses. I would be worried about them too. Two years of drought is a lot of drought, so they're busy hunting for water. Yeah. Can't tell you now. It's hard to know. And certainly from these few verses, it's hard to know. But this is what you're asking are all the good questions. 
The question is, what is Ahab's role in the massacre of the prophets? The massacre of the prophets is a severe thing, and I don't need to tell you that when a prophetic narrator is writing about these things, it is as severe as it gets. Oh my goodness, these people were appalling. Not only were they idolaters, that's already really awful, but they were massacring the prophets of God. Bless this Ovadiah who just shows up and saves a hundred of them, but obviously that wasn't all of them. Jezebel got a whole bunch, I'm sure. So that's what's flying over here. But what is Ahab's role in this massacre? This is an important question. Is the narrative blaming him also? Is he, he couldn't have been clueless, could he? Hmm? We're not really sure. Okay, hold that thought for a moment. Let's go to source five, which is the story about Navot that I mentioned to you a few minutes ago. Navot, again, was the poor vineyard owner who's going to end up losing his life by refusing Ahab the vineyard. So here's how the story goes, less paraphrased, just the actual story. Ahab went home dispirited and sullen because of the answer that Navot the Jezreelite had given him. I will not give up to you what I've inherited from my fathers. That's what Navot told Ahab. He lay down on his bed and turned away his face and he would not eat. His wife Jezebel came to him and asked him, why are you so dispirited that you won't eat? And so he told her, I spoke to Navot the Jezreelite and proposed to him, sell me your vineyard for money. Or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in exchange. But he answered, I will not give my vineyard to you. His wife Jezebel said to him, Now is the time to show yourself king over Israel. Rise and eat something and be cheerful. I will get the vineyard of Navot the Jezreelite for you. And then she rigs the whole trial that I was mentioning before. Okay, what's Ahab's role in the murder of Navot? Huh? Instigator. Acquiescence. So Jezebel's doing it, okay. What else? Ahab acts like the king has other people do his dirty work. Now he fell the same thing. Well, I think some, some of the stuff, I'm sorry to say, all by himself. He had guards brought by Shabbat in, but the main thing that he did Correct. Correct. No, no, there's no question that he gets other people to do a lot of a, a lot of that work. In this case, it's his son, so it's, it's complicated. But all the same, we'll talk about that another time. Yeah. It sounds like reminiscent of the Dalit Kaba. Oh, it's, it's the woman who gave. She she said he so. Right. So. Here, remember, Ahab is not the one who's trying to pass the blame. I'm interested in what is the, is the narrator passing the blame to her. Or is the narrator saying, no, Ahab is the instigator and is an active participant in these murders, but Jezebel is the one with the axe. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me like Ahab was, uh, was giving up. Ahab himself is going to bed, he's going to be sick of battle, whatever. His wife says, why aren't you acting like a king? I'll get it for you. So it's not like David, where David says, do this and go kill him. More like Shavuot does the same kind of thing. Get David, get him. He was giving up. I lost and she just says, that's act like a king. Starting, I'll get her. So it's not a half at all. She was really taking action. So you're saying that he was a passive, wimpy figure who yes. just really isn't guilty of murder per se. Yeah, yes. He knows by telling Jezebel he's a powerhouse, bad things might happen. And he's very happy to take the vineyard once that book is bumped off in the trial. But he's passive in terms of the actual murder. Okay. In terms of like, I mean, his chief steward is 
So you could just say he's a terribly wimpy fellow who is kind of hedging around and letting the powerhouse players like Jezebel or Elijah do their thing. And he just kind of folds his arms and hopes that things will kind of work out sort of. And they do, for him, most of the time until he's killed at the end. Right? And it could be. Yeah? alone in this. You know, the classic Abraham priest, age 75 Midrashim, which are, you know, it takes a long time to tell kids it's really not in the Torah at all. It's not even like teased out of, it's teased out of other biblical passages, but not the Breshit ones about Abraham, where, you know, Terah brings Abraham to Nimrod, the wicked king of Babylonia, and Nimrod says, bow to the idol, Abraham says, absolutely not. And then Abraham had a brother named Haran, so he says, so Haran's like, you know, I'll wait to see what happens with Abraham and then I'll, I'll figure it out from there. And so Abraham has the integrity, goes in there, miraculously is saved. So then Haran is like, all right, Abraham wins, I'm going with him, throw me into the oven, but alas, because he was a hedger, down he went. And that was the end of Haran. Love that stuff. But in the meantime, the way you're describing Ahab is kind of Haran-esque. That in other words, he wasn't evil, he's just really flaky and unsure. And, okay, so there are some really awesome people like Elijah out there, and there are some really evil people like Jezebel out there, and they're going to duke it out for a while, and Ahab just wants to see how it's all going to turn out. He doesn't take a stand. But that's different from passive. Right? One is confused, one is, he's a wimp. Right? Your, your slant was, the guy's a wimp. He's bad, but he's, he's a wimpy bad. He doesn't know how to take a dagger and stab innocent people himself, but he knows that Jezebel will do it. So he cries a bunch in bed, and Jezebel takes, you know, she gets the dagger, and it's all over. It's different perspectives. Okay. Well, there's a Jerusalem Talmud passage, which really, oh, I love all these Talmudic dreams. They're fantastic. Here you go. Source 6. For six months, Rabbi Levi explained the verse. Indeed, there never was anyone like Ahav who committed himself to doing what was displeasing to the Lord. I really would love to be sitting in on the six months worth of shiurim. Like, what did he do with it exactly? Like, here he's quoting one half of one verse. I'm very curious how he would develop the theme. But the gist of it is, Rabbi Levi, for six months, when he was teaching about Ahav, was talking about just how rotten Ahav was. So finally, after six months of, of these classes, in a manner critical of Ahav, you understand that when you have a summary statement like that by a prophet, that's, that's really bad for the character of Ahav. Ahab came to Rabbi Levi in a dream and protested, How have I wronged you? Is there only a first half to this verse? The second half reads, At the instigation of his wife Jezebel. Hey, it was her fault. And the verse says that. It's not just me trying to get out of blame. The verse says, At the instigation of his wife Jezebel. Rabbi Levi responded by teaching this verse for six months with a favorable slant toward Ahab. 
So he's looking for balance. You know, when you give a shiur, you're supposed to look for balance. I don't know that everybody always looks for it, but it's important to look for it, right? Rabbi Levi tries to epitomize that over here. He spends six months talking about the first half of the verse, which is a summary statement condemning Achav to being absolutely evil. But then Achav protests. He says, wait a minute, read the second half of the verse. It blames Jezebel. And indeed it does. It doesn't, but the question is, does the blame of Jezebel reduce Achav's blame? Sounds like Adam blaming Chava. Right. I think that comment was just made a little while ago. Is he simply trying to transfer blame? But I'm not interested in Achav. In other words, in the case of Adam and Chava, there are characters. Adam did something wrong, and he's blaming somebody who happened to hand him off whatever fruit that was. Right? Okay. Here, it's, we're, we're not dealing with the character. We're, de- we're dealing with the narrator. In other words, the question is, what is the narrator trying to say to us? That's a real question from a shot point of view. We're trying to understand the intent of the author. Is the author trying to say that it's Jezebel's fault? Or is the author saying, yes, Jezebel was the powerhouse instigating all this evil, but Ahab deserves plenty of blame for tolerating it, instigating it, even being a wimp and allowing this to happen, or being confused. Whatever slant you want to take here. He's still a really bad guy to allow these things to happen in his kingdom when he is the king. Yeah. In this case, it isn't positive. This source is about what is the narrator trying to do with Ahab? Is the narrator saying Ahab is a purely evil king? Or is the narrator trying to say that Ahav led a, an evil reign because of his wife Jezebel? That second thing is not positive, right, at all. But it's less bad than if he is actively evil. Right? It's not positive. But then the end seems to say that he went on for another six months favorably Favorably just means that it's really Jezebel's fault... And Ahab was more passive in the process. That, that, that's the favorable. <laughs> also true, also true. Very, very good observation. I don't know what to make of that myself, but but all the same, you understand what he's trying to do. He's trying to understand the narrator's intent. And he says, when you read the summary statements that we look at in sources one and two, it's very easy to hear. Ahab was really, really bad. He made Jeroboam look like child's play. He was an idolater. He built idolatrous shrines. He was terrible. And the other slant is. He did all these things because Jezebel was promoting them. Doesn't make him good. The second one's not a not a good thing. Yeah. Correct. So then, so I, I agree, and the narrator obviously agrees with you also. The narrator blames Ahab for being a really wicked king, but the question is, what is the nature of his wickedness? Was he an active idolater murderer type? That's one, you know, one type. In terms of responsibility, he deserves plenty of bad responsibility, and that's Elijah the prophet gave it to him for that very reason. You're, of course, correct. All I'm saying is, though, what, what this debate that's going on in Rabbi Levi's mind, 
and, and played out very beautifully with this whole dream thing, is what is the narrator saying about Ahav's character? Was he a weak character who tolerated evil and the buck stops with him? And he's responsible ultimately? Or was he part of the... Were they in cahoots? Were he and Jezebel doing exactly the same agenda, promoting idolatry, promoting murder, and then he was allowing his wife to be the, you know, the, the, the henchman? Right? That's the question in play. Yeah, Micah? But, uh, is there any example on the record, any example where he actively Because so far these are all examples of where he's, he's passive. The answer is no. These, you know, the stories that we're looking at here, if you look at Ahab's resume, it would include, in his reign, prophets were massacred. He was behind the murder of Navot and took his field, his vineyard. Okay? These are the two murder stories. And both of them have Jezebel's fingerprints all over them. The question is, where are Ahab's fingerprints and how do we view them? So that's what Rabbi Levi here is struggling with. Part of him thinks he was behind the whole thing. Not just Buck stops there, but he, he wanted this to be happening. Versus he was confused, versus he was a wimp, versus there are all these other ways that one could take it. Rabbi Levi wasn't sure how to read these verses. Yeah, George. Essentially, you have a classic consider, and given morality and duty, free will, free choice, there comes a point where you need to make the proper or appropriate choice. And maybe they're trying to figure out where to push him off his pedestal, where he actually finds sufficient instigation. You're for sure, your point is well taken. I think it's similar to the comment in the back before about him being confused of where to go. Like he's fence sitting. Sure. I mean, the fence sitting thing I think is critical, and we're going to get back to that point in just a little while, Joe. I, I would love to hear those shiurim online. I mean, it would be amazing to hear a year's worth of shiurim on this material because, frankly, it's so it's so rich. There, there's so much going on anyway, and I would love to hear his take beyond how he's dissecting this one verse. But it's, a, it's certainly a poetic way of describing. I will get the mic back in just a moment. I agree. I don't think you have to take it literally that for one year he just taught this one verse. Because, man, that's a slow-moving shiur by anybody's standards, right? The issue, but the issue is, I think it's a poetic statement, trying to describe that he really struggled with what is the narrator's intent. That's certainly what I'm walking away with with this source, yeah. Wouldn't you suppose that the political climate of the time, that he was as weak and wishy-washy as one might suggest he had been overthrown? Uh, it's, it, it's not always easy to overthrow a king, right? Sometimes it happens. Yeah, the northern dynasties, the northern dynasties seldom lasted very long. Maybe. What you're saying from a political point of view, I can't agree, disagree. The biblical text obviously isn't focusing on the politics so much. It's really focusing on his 
behavior and that for the most part it's evil. But we have this possible mitigating factor about where his wife is the powerhouse and where he might be a wimp or a coward or just not willing to take responsibility or unsure. This brings us to the second part, which I find even more interesting. And the question is, what you do with certain passages that sound like Ahav is kind of like, um, I hate to say it, good. And, uh, and that, that's, the, that's, that's what we have to look at now. We have to go back, first of all, to source number four. Ahav had summoned Ovadiah, the steward of the palace. Ovadiah revered the Lord greatly. He's the only person in all Tanakh, by the way, who it says about him, Yareat Hashem Me'od. There are people who are called God-fearing in Tanakh. But he's the only one who very was God-fearing. I don't know if that's just a nod to the fact that here he is, the chief steward in Ahab's palace. Like he's dealing with very wicked king and queen, and he's the head of the household. That's pretty God-fearing. And the fact that he hid prophets under the king and queen's nose, knowing very well what the king and queen were doing with these prophets, it's kind of brave. I'm impressed. This Ovadiah really does very well. The narrator likes him very much. But why does Ahab hire him as the chief steward? He knows this stuff. He knows that he's a God-fearing man. If you're trying to promote Baal throughout the kingdom, why do you hire this guy? I'm sure there were plenty of people who could have, you could have hired who would actively promote Baal within the palace, get the whole official policy this way. Yeah? Is it catching? Is catching again? Just in case they keep the channel... Okay, so, so if you take that slant, then he's either he's not sure, or he might be sure, but he's cowardly. Uh, you, could, you could still go one of those two ways. But the fact that he's promoting a very God-fearing man in his palace, with knowing what his queen's policies are, that's amazing, I think. I think it's incredible that Ovadiah is the head steward in the household. That brings us to the most exciting part of the whole thing. We're going to zoom down to source number seven now, which is actually what we are up to. The most dramatic part, or at least I think it's the most dramatic part, or at least the most dramatic public scene of the whole Elijah Ahab narrative is the showdown at Mount Carmel. It's chapter 18 of the Book of Kings. Chapter 18, God summons Elijah back from two years in hiding to go, it's time to confront the king, have a showdown, end this drought once and for all. So Elijah initiates this incredible showdown at Mount Carmel. Yeah, Miriam? Elijah is hiding separately from the 50 that Yeah, he's not in a cave. He's on his own. He, Elijah is like Mr. Incredible. He, he does everything alone. These other, hundred, these other hundred prophets, I don't know who they are, what they did, but they're not, they play no role in the narrative. So there was a place I've been in it. There are even, of course, notes in the wall because, hey, why not? Pray to whatever, <laughs> pray to whatever wall you can, and 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 so that's that's the way these things go. But in the meantime, and for all we know, it's the cave, and then for all we know, it's a great tourist attraction. You find some little hole, and bam, people it becomes a shrine. I, I have no idea if that's the place. Keep in mind that the Elijah showdown didn't happen in a cave; it happened just in public on the mountain. Oh well. But in the meantime, but, it, but it's cool to be there all the same because you figure he might have walked on this spot. Right? Eliyahu takes, he wants to have a grand showdown where he's going to prove scientifically that God is a yes and Baal is nothing. And the way you prove this scientifically in his mind is you get all the prophets of Baal together and you say whoever is able to send fire from heaven is the true deity. Alright, that works. And it worked. 
Right? The prophets of Baal prayed and screamed and danced and did all their rituals all day long. Nothing happened. Of course, Elijah has some of the finest sarcastic moments in the entire Bible right there. Fantastic. It's hilarious, actually. And he really lets them have it. Then, finally, toward the end of the day, Elijah pulls everybody together. And he prays to God and says, Okay, God, this is your moment. You better come through here because it would be really bad if, if no fire from heaven comes right now. But if it comes... Everybody's going to win. You, you win. And lo and behold, boom, fire comes from heaven. Everybody falls on their faces. Adonai hu Elohim. Adonai hu Elohim. God is the true, you know, the, Hashem is the true God. Terrific ending. And then it's actually a happy moment. So I'll just savor it for just a second. Then we'll get back to what we're doing. For that one moment, and then it rains, which is important also. The drought is over. And then Ahav, being a good king, doesn't want to get drenched like anybody else. Everybody starts scurrying home. So Ahav hitches up the chariot and starts running. Eliyahu the prophet runs ahead of Ahav's chariot back to the palace. Now, this is where you need the people who know the map. That was about 25 kilometers or 15 miles or so. To outrun a chariot even for 100 yards is really impressive. For the prophet to be able to do that for 15 miles is truly astounding. And what I love about it, I just picture, you know, I assume he has a long beard, because how could he not? I'm just picturing Eliyahu the Navi getting completely drenched, water dripping down his beard, racing ahead of the king's chariot. For that one moment, God, the prophet, and the wicked king are all in harmony. Which is zero true of the whole rest of the narrative. Like, the rest of the narrative is bad news and a lot of struggle. Here, for that one moment, everything is in sync, and had the story ended there, it could have been a different world. That's not the way it ended at all. So, the point is that Eliyahu comes back and finds the king. And this brings us to source number seven. Eliyahu tells the king, Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, together with the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, these are different deities in play, who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab sent orders to all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. So first thing to note is Ahab helped Eliyahu get this whole thing together. Eliyahu says, look, I need your help, king. You're the king. Summon everybody. Get everybody together at Mount Carmel. Get the prophets of Baal together, prophets of Asherah, all the people. You're the king. You could send out notes. Everybody's going to show up. Ahab says, okay, sure. So he gets it all together. Then that whole story that I just told you happened. The prophets of Baal pray all day. Nothing happens. Fire comes from heaven. And now we go to verse 39, which is, I skipped out all those other things. We're up to verse 39. When they saw this, all the people flung themselves on their faces and cried out, The Lord alone is God. The Lord alone is God. Then Elijah said to them, who's them? All the people, right? Everybody who's there. Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not a single one of them get away. They seized them. And Elijah took them down to the Wadi Kishon and slaughtered them there. Okay. That's anyway an interesting and fun question. They don't seem to have been summoned. Ahab probably was smart enough. This is the best answer I've seen on that question. Then we'll get back to the bigger question of the day. He was smart enough to realize that the prophets of Asherah ate at Jezebel's table. It might be smart. He doesn't want to alienate and antagonize his wife because you don't want to mess with her in case you haven't picked that one up yet. So he just figures, let's leave her prophets alone and let's focus on the prophets of Baal here, okay? That seems to be his tactic. That's reasonable to me. Uh... Where is Ahav in this camera scene when the whole people who are there, Ahav was there, when they're all flinging themselves on their faces saying, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, and when they're massacring the prophets of Baal, where is Ahav on the set? His name is not here, which is important, but he was there. 
He was somewhere at the Mount Carmel thing. He was watching the whole thing. And maybe was he was he flinging himself on the face and crying out that God is is the real one and Baal is nothing? So, so from that point of view, you think he's a diehard Baal guy, but he doesn't want to get himself in trouble here. It's like, whoa, the people are against me. I'm just going to stay silent and, you know, text some friends and, and pretend that I'm not seeing the whole thing. Okay, that's possible. But is it possible that he's flaking himself on his face and he's crying out as passionately as everybody else that, hey, God wins. I saw it with my own eyes. Is he helping massacre the prophets of Baal because he realizes that Eliyahu is right? He was right there with chariot and all. Hmm? It's weird. I mean, you know, if you're going with all Israel's there and you know that the king is there, you know he's, he's there somewhere. The fact that his name doesn't register here might suggest he was passive or staying out of the fray or afraid of rocking any boats at that particular moment. Right? That's how Rabbi Elchanan Samet reads this story. Rabbi Elchanan Samet has a 600-page book, Pirkei Eliyahu, just on the Eliyahu narratives. How cool is that? Love that stuff. And uh, it's a great book to boot. He argues that Ahab's missing name here is a way of suggesting he's passive. He's, you know, he's watching it all. He realizes this is not a good time to open his mouth at all. So he watches it all happen. Let, let the massacre of the prophets of Baal. I'll deal with all the problems later. That's one way of reading it. Malbim in the 19th century. Malbim is an acronym for Meir Lebush Ben Yechil Michal. Right? So that's what we call him Malbim. It's much easier that way. So Malbim living in 19th century, he was a rabbi in Berlin. He says, no, Ahav was deeply moved by this thing. I mean, wouldn't you? You're watching this fire come from heaven. Let's say you're a farmer who's hedging bets. And all of a sudden, a fire comes from heaven at the end of the day because Eliyahu asked for it. And the prophets of Baal got nothing. That's very impressive. It's awe-striking. So he says, yeah, Ahav is just as awestruck as any other person over there. And so he falls on his face, and that flows into what happens next. After that great chariot chasing scene, we go right into source 8, and this is why the story doesn't end happily ever after. When Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had put all the prophets to the sword, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, Thus and more may the gods do, if by this time tomorrow I have not made you like one of them. So of course, the first thing he does is he comes home and says, Hey, honey! You're not going to believe what happened this afternoon. I was there. I saw the whole thing myself. Eliyahu and all the prophets of Baal were there. And the prophets of Baal danced and sang and prayed and nothing happened. And then Eliyahu got the fire to come from heaven. They've massacred all the prophets of Baal. What does Ahab hope Jezebel's response will be? Huh? According to Malbi. Ahab came home and was just all really souped up and naively. He's like, honey, God really is the true deity. I saw it with my own eyes. We have this all wrong. According to Malbim, Ahab came home and sincerely told his wife that Eliyahu won. And he's now convinced. According to Rabbi Elchanan Samet, he came home and he told Jezebel because he's like, look, in case you haven't figured this out by now, I'm a total wimp. I'm never going to do anything. But my wife, I know how she'll take this news. 
And indeed, he came home in order to trigger this response. Like, I'm never going to confront Eliyahu and Abi. Forget about it. I, I can't deal with any of this stuff. But Jezebel is going to be able to threaten his life. Right? According to that, he doesn't come home all souped up and excited or whatever. He's passive. He's cowardly. But he knows that Jezebel is not passive or cowardly. She's evil. But, she, but she's not shy. She's able to do what she needs to get done. She knows that by, he knows that by coming home and telling her that, of course she will threaten him and that will do what needed to be done, which is, Eliyahu was so terrified of the whole thing, he fled. He left the country on this, uh, at this threat and, and did not come back. So Ahab, from that point of view, achieved what he wanted to do, to get rid of Eliyahu, so he wouldn't cause any further trouble. Well, which one is it? Was he really moved by the whole thing? And just was so naive that he thought his wife was going to come along for the ride? Or was he interested in ridding the country of Eliyahu and figured Jezebel would be the one to do it? Which one is it? It makes a big difference of how we understand Ahab. Now here's an interesting methodological question. Given that the summary statements about Ahab by the prophet in sources 1 and 2, the way we started the whole shiur, are so negative to Ahab, should we just use those to say, look, obviously the narrator hates the guy. Why in the world should we be picking around for possibly positive things? He didn't believe in God. He was a Baal worshiper through and through. He wanted to trigger Jezebel's response. We should read all the stories in light of the surrounding narrative summary statements. Or should we say, no, the summary statements cover some of the story. But Ahab actually had something good about it. He actually was moved and actually did believe in God on that day and actually was hoping that his wife would buy into that somehow. It didn't work. Yeah. You could argue that way, and I think it's a perfectly fair argument. That comes back to the Jezebel responsibility question, which even if she is the biggest and baddest and most active evildoer, that doesn't absolve Ahab in any way. My question now is different. My question is, when you see things that where he actually may have participated in the greatest massacre of Baal prophets ever, and he might have actually fallen on his face and genuinely said that Hashem is God, and he might have actually really run home to Jezebel and said, Wow, honey... We have this all wrong. I believe in God now. And Jezebel's like, oh, we'll see about that. Right? And, and, and she reacts the way that she does. Is it fair to read such nice... Again, Ahab still comes out as a horrible figure. I'm not trying to make him into a good guy. Don't worry. But, but I'm interested in, should we be viewing these positive things as positive? Or should we say, since the summary narrative statements are so... They condemn him so thoroughly... Why bother? He obviously was bad and assumed the worst. You know, what's the narrative intent? What is the narrator trying to get across? Yeah. Well, in the Yom Al, for example, goes and tells them they have to repent their ways. He has the shock of seeing that, in fact, they do repent their ways. 
Yeah, much to his chagrin, right? Yeah, I'm very, very upset. Right, but there, the difference is the people of Nineveh shockingly actually do repent. Here, we're looking at... But they even returned stuff that they stole. They really, they actually really repented. I don't know how long it lasted, but at least in the story, they repented, right? Here, we're dealing with, we see the facts, we have Ahab is on the screen. The question is, how do we interpret these stories? Do we just say the summary narrative is a way of saying, let's judge him as unfavorably as possible, which is a reasonable text conclusion to draw. Just let's trash the guy. He's awful. Why look for any nooks and crannies that might be favorable? Right? We could talk about the responsibility vis-a-vis Jezebel, but, but, but in, here are things that are good. He has Ovadiah in the home. He helped Elijah stage the whole Baal showdown. He seems to have been there. and Well, he certainly was there. And was he even moved? That's the question. Yeah, I'll look. Um, if I remember correctly, before the draft, there was more of a competition directly Eliyahu and uh, and I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but here we have a second competition, and God does not take him out. He God does not take out Eliyahu. He could have killed him with all the other priests, and right. he did it. Right. So that seems to somehow weigh in the assessment. I can't tell you, you know, it's hard to interpret God's non-wiping out Jezebel also, right? God doesn't actively step in and smite some people with lightning and move on. He sends a drought to the nation. And then Eliyahu has to sort it out with the king and the queen. I don't know how to read that as a narrative comment, though, because God doesn't act in the same way every time. But we have, Eliyahu has this one confrontation that then results in the drought. Right. And then he has this other confrontation which results in sort of distorting it back to, to the city. So there's something there that, that is different um, than how he handled the priests and from what the narrative tells us consistently about Jezebel. So there is something there that's I, I agree. I, I'm just wondering how to interpret it. No, no, I, need, I hate saying this. I want to leave God out of this. <laughs> right? Just because, again, we don't have a clear narrative statement about what God's role should be. But, but your cycle could very well be correct. In other words, you could interpret the whole thing as there's an initial negative confrontation because Ahab is a ball worshiper. But now that Ahab has come around, Eliyahu accompanies him, army. Right? You could learn that. Or you could say, yeah, in the next chapter when he talks to Jezebel, and you could say, oh, he wasn't sincere at all. He, he wanted to trigger. You could still read it. I think that cycle of the, of the two confrontations followed by Jezebel could be read very well both ways. Yeah. Going back to the model of the confusion, could you even say that he was trying to push God's hands? Like, there was no one like that to be so displeasing to Hashem because he really wanted the Elijah moment to happen. Like, he wanted to Sound about the Gamashmer in terms of uh, Percy for Haman and so for Mordecai, etc. 
Okay, so a couple, yeah, good. I'm going to try to read first uh, source number eight as though Ahab was totally convinced and enthralled. And he said, of course, stupid, I'll show you, I'm going to kill him. Because it says, No, Yahweh, Ahab, he said, Call us, Sheriff, tell you, you call us, I'm Rocky, call us, you That was enthusiastic. I think that this reminds me of is Moshe telling Yitro. Everything that was done by God, by Yahweh, he said all of this, and how he had taken all these terrible things and saved the Jews of the sea and the world. So that's that's the tone of that. Yahweh, call us or something. Call us or this is enthusiasm. He wasn't like, oh no, what are we going to do? That's the eager response that he comes with. I mean, I can't tell you no. Malbim makes a very fair reading of this. I don't know that you could prove it from the parallel of, of Moshe and Yitro. Oh, okay. so, 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 it, it, it could just as well be that he reported it, no, and then you have to read this point in, but it's not a non-shot reading in. He told her so that he knew what she, he knew what she was going to react. And that's what Al-Khanan Samit says. It's like, okay, he comes back and he says, Honey, guess what happened? Let me relate the whole thing, blow by blow. Knowing full well, how do you think Jezebel's going to take this whole thing? She's going to blow her stack. And so you, I think you still can read it. It goes back to the Judy cycle thing. That you have these two confrontations or, or dialogues, whatever you want to call them, interchanges between Eliyahu and Ahab. The first one is obviously negative because Ahab is bad. But at the end, you could read the whole thing as total harmony, but then Jezebel messes up the whole thing. Or you could read it as, no, there's no harmony at all. Ahab is, can't wait to get home to drive Eliyahu out of the country. Let me just wrap up a couple of things and maybe we'll take a couple of other couple of other points also. I, just want, I, don't, want to, I don't want to go too long. Right after the summary statement, it's interesting, there's a summary statement in source one, which is the very beginning of the narrative. And then there's the summary statement in source two, which is toward the end of the Ahab narrative, but it's not at the end. Right after source two, where it says, let's just read source two again. Indeed, there never was anyone like Ahab who committed himself to doing what was displeasing to the Lord at the instigation of his wife Jezebel. He acted most abominably, straying after the fetishes, just like the Amorites, whom the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. That's as condemning as you go. The next three verses are, after Eliyahu had proclaimed a decree against Ahab because of the murder of Navot, go to source nine. When Ahab heard these words, he rent his clothes and put sackcloth on his body. He fasted and lay in sackcloth and walked about subdued. Then the word of the Lord came to Eliyahu the Tishbite. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his lifetime. I will bring the disaster upon his house in his son's time. Ahab becomes one of the two penitent kings along with King David from last time. Right? Now... 
The sages don't know what to do with it. You know how sages deal with this kind of question? They, they sit around the Beit Midrash and they discuss what kings get a share in the world to come. Not because they could verify the answer to that. They're trying to figure out from a narrative point of view. What kings have done something that is so irreversibly bad that they, they're done? If anybody belongs on that hit list, Ahab is on it. And in fact, in the Mishnah and Sanhedrin, he's one of three Israelite kings who have no share in the world to come. Along with Jeroboam, the one who built the golden calves, and King Menasheh, who's guilty of both murder and putting idolatry into the temple itself. So all three of them, yeah, they're, they're done and they never, they never climb out of that. But there's a minority view in the, in Tractate Sanhedrin that gives Ahab a share in the world to come, and it's based on these verses. That right after the summary verses condemning Ahab, which is a way of saying, this guy is irredeemable, here you have God himself saying, hey, he actually repented. There's some sincerity here. We have to give him some credit for that. So there's a minority rabbinic view that he has a share in the world to come because he repented. Now, it seems that, again, I'm not going to try to verify it. I will say that when I was a rabbinical student, and was, I took a great interest in Ahab then also. There's a much more developed version of, you know, when I started exploring this in rabbinical schools, so I actually published an article in a journal that it should be called defunct, but then they sort of revived it with a different name, so I don't know if you want to call it defunct or not. It was called Hamavasar back then. Rabbi Chaim Bravender was the founder of that student journal back in the day. Now it's called Kol Hamavasar, so it has been revised, revived after many years on hiatus. So I wrote an article called Achav, colon, an unlikely role model from hell, which at the time was the sort of thing that was a good way to shake up the trees a little bit. And... In fact, it actually triggered such a hostile response by a fellow student who thought... So I tried to play both sides. One side is Ahab is just plain bad, and the other one is. There's some redeeming things over here. And look, Midrashim noticed the same things that we're noticing today. Right? All cool. Well, this other guy wrote a response that was way longer than my original piece. And then, of course, I had to write a response to him, which was good, because now people read it. <laughs> which was very, very helpful. So it became a very interesting debate on campus, you know, back in the early 1990s, about whether Ahab has some redeeming figures or not, features or not. It was a lot of fun. But in the meantime, it all comes down to the source number 10, which several of you have already alluded to at some point. At Mount Carmel, when Eliyahu speaks to the people, Eliyahu approached all the people and said, How long will you keep hopping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Of course, from a prophetic point of view, you can't, it's not, you can't choose one or the other. You choose God, period. It's over. Whereas to their point of view, they were hedging, right? They chose God and they chose Baal. You could read Ahav as somebody who chose God and chose Baal throughout the entire narrative, right? What several of you have suggested. That he married Jezebel and absolutely supported her policies. But then he also supported Eliyahu's policies, and helped in the eradication of the Baal cult from his kingdom, even though he's the guy who introduced the Baal cult to his kingdom. He actually supported the prophets and supported Ezebel simultaneously. He's the one who's hopping between two opinions. Or you could say, no, he's hiding behind all of that. The fact is he was a true Baal person, wanted to eradicate godliness from the kingdom, and simply let Jezebel and the other hitmen take care of all of that for him, in which case he is purely evil and has nothing good. But that's what makes this narrative so fantastic. As much as I dislike Ahav, because how could you like him? The fact of the matter is, there are there's this real strong possibility that he had a genuine heart for godliness also, 
had Ovadiah in the palace helped Eliyahu. And he was simply trying to hedge both sides, whether because he was a weak and cowardly figure or because he really was confused and wasn't sure which side to support. Not sure. Or, no, he really wanted to eradicate godliness and was absolutely bad. The Talmudic sages that are debating whether we take the summary statement as the whole story or whether there's a lot of nuance is all in the text itself. There's real shot bearing on every one of these questions. And I love the fact that in an hour, we've managed to hash out all of those nuances together as a group, which I always think is just so fantastic. I wanted to thank all of you for for coming both for this one and if you've come to the previous ones to the previous ones also it's been an absolute pleasure doing the history at home she in the past couple of years I want to thank again the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals I also want to give a special shout out to the Lincoln Square Chevra that's here the Lincoln Square Synagogue Chevra is here this is actually the stuff we were about to be up to in our three year march so I'm actually happy that we got to do it together in some capacity it was a real special thing learning over there for three years running before moving over here to the east side to be part of the KJ community on that happy note I thank you all for coming wish you a Shavuot and look forward to learning with you on future venues as well.